Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning. And I know that, again, it's a warm October weekend and Christmas and snow and cold that comes with it are probably really far removed from your minds, but I want to thank you for uh, singing a Christmas hymn with me today. We celebrate the reality of Christ's birth and as well as events like his death and resurrection and ascension, not just on those specific days or seasons. Those, and in fact, those, those events cannot just be relegated to the those seasons to the days on the calendar. The reality of those events impact our everyday life. And if you've looked ahead in your bulletin, you've probably noticed that we're going to be singing an Easter hymn following the sermon, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Just as the impact of Jesus' birth uh, isn't, isn't celebrated just one day on a calendar, Jesus Christ remains risen from the dead today. He is risen. And that truth is the, the greatest singular truth. And it's something that we should sing about. And again, we're, we're singing Christmas hymns and Easter hymns today, not just to, to satisfy my whims as I wrote out the order of service, but because our sermon text this morning resolves and hinges on uh, the church's confession of faith in Jesus, in the incarnated word of God, God in flesh who was crucified for us, who was resurrected, who has ascended into heaven. And central to the sermon text that we are about to read, uh, it's an early Christian confession of faith, a hymn of sorts, if you will. It's also been called one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church. You know, throughout the years, the church has used creeds and confessions, often sung in hymn form, to summarize our beliefs and to summarize the teachings of Scripture. It's, right, it's, it's one thing to say, I believe in God. Right? The, the ancient Romans or Egyptians or, or modern Hindus or Buddhists would say the same thing. Yes, I believe in God. But what do you believe about God? The same could be said for the statement, I believe in Jesus. Right? We believe in Jesus. Mormons and Muslims also believe in Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? And the creeds and confessions of the church succinctly summarize what the Bible proclaims, what the Christian church has taught, and what we believe about God and Jesus. And that's why each Sunday we say together, corporately, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed. We confess our faith in that regard, and that ancient confession of faith unites us with believers across time and space while succinctly and yet thoroughly summarizing the Christian faith. One cannot rightly be called a Christian if they do not hold to the teachings of these confessions. And again, this morning's sermon text has this great confession of faith, wonderful confession of faith in who Jesus is. And we'll discover this confession of who Jesus is is not just a mere intellectual assent to some head knowledge. 
The reality of who Jesus is and what he has done impacts and affects every fiber of our being. We're continuing again in our discussion in the book of uh, 1 Timothy. And there are two truths that we are going to look at this morning. One comes from the end of chapter 3 and the other one comes from the beginning of chapter 4. And again, as we dive into these truths this morning, we need to bear in mind that Paul is writing to Timothy, the pastor of a church in Ephesus. This letter that we are reading then is presented in the context of a local congregation, a congregation, a local congregation just like this one here. And so we will relate these wonderful truths found in Scripture to this congregational setting as well. Uh, First, in in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, we discover that the congregation is called to a worshipful confession of Jesus as Lord, a worshipful confession of Jesus as Lord. Would you uh, stand with me as I, as I begin and we read scripture here? We'll just read again these verses from chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, reading in Jesus' name. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Would you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I do thank you for this day. It is so good to gather with your people here in this place, Lord. And as we open up your word today and we look at at the truths that are contained in Scripture and as we look at this confession of faith and then how also that impacts our our everyday life, we ask that you would uh, move in our hearts, Lord, not just to, to an intellectual head knowledge of who you are, Uh, but may that impact our our hearts and our lives and and change us deeply from within. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, I want to keep the uh, the context of 1 Timothy in mind. Timothy being a a, a young pastor gets this letter from Paul and Timothy lived in, in Ephesus and he worked in a congregation there in that city and most Bible scholars believe that this letter was written around 65 AD which would have been after Paul's imprisonment that we read about in the book of Acts. And after that, Paul was released and continued to travel, spreading the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, wherever he went. Uh, Some scholars even believe he went as far as Spain to do that. And somewhere in those travels, Paul writes this letter then to Timothy, encouraging him to keep on the right path that Paul started him on. And so in these verses, Paul reiterates his desire to visit Timothy soon. He knew that the window in which he had to visit Timothy was probably getting smaller. So this letter he he has written stands in his place, reminding Timothy of these things. These things that direct believers in their right conduct and in their walk with the Lord. And these 
And, the, and these, these things, can I say that, right? <laughs> it sounds weird as I say it, but uh, the, these things goes all the way back to chapter 1 and, and uh, talks about all the things that Paul has written so far. It, it includes uh, Paul's personal charge to Timothy to stay true to God's word. That's all through chapter 1. It includes in chapter 2 Paul's discussion of, of holy behavior and corporate prayer. It includes also his discussion in chapter 2 on congregational order. And then chapter 3 verses we looked at last week, Paul talks about qualifications for leadership within the congregation. Paul wrote those things in chapters 1 through 3 to instruct believers in how we ought to behave when we come together as a group, as believers. And notice, if, if you would, how Paul describes this gathering of believers in verse 15. He says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress. We're all familiar with the concept and the idea of a pillar, aren't we? You most likely pass by one or two of them. Uh, even this morning as you came into church, you probably didn't even think about it. If you came in the front door of the church, and you're not one of those who sneak in the back door and don't get greeted, <laughs> but if you came in the front door of the church, you went under that canopy, right? And that canopy on the far side, on the roadside, is supported by two pillars that, that, that hold up, that prop up the building, the roof, right? In a similar fashion, a buttress, and I have some pictures of them here, a buttress is an architectural advancement that's, that's changed over the ages, but the idea is the same. Right? In, in ancient architecture, the, the walls of the outside walls of the building bore the weight of the upper part of the building and the roof. And as a result, if the upper building was too heavy, the, the, the roof was too heavy, the walls would begin to push out and sag, and eventually the building would collapse under its own weight. And so they started building these buttresses, these, these structures that would support the outside wall. Usually they'd be attached to the wall or the pillar to give it support strength. And these are some simple pictures of buttresses here on a, on a Spanish-era colonial church in New Mexico, right? Kind of beehive shape there, just mounds of dirt piled up against the wall to support it. Uh, oftentimes they are a little bit fancier, like these flying buttresses that were very prevalent in Gothic-era churches. Um, and this, I think, was the, the cathedral in York. But if you look at a picture of Notre Dame or any classic cathedral, they will have these flying buttresses. Pillars and buttresses helped hold up and reinforce the building, reinforce the structure. And in a very similar way, Paul says that the church, the, the capital C church, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church supports, the church holds up, the church reinforces the truth. And you, as a member of God's household, the church, you are a pillar, you are a buttress of the truth. And so what is this truth that, that, that the church, that you, that we are supporting and reinforcing? The truth, uh, the most important truth we can support, as Paul describes it there in verse 16, is the mystery of godliness. And what, in, what is contained in this mystery is revealed in the rest of verse 16. Uh, let me reread this confession of faith, this creed, this statement of belief 
this, this hymn again and again. As I do, keep in mind that this statement wasn't just written down so believers could have head knowledge, intellectual assent of who Jesus is, but this confession of faith is meant to change and impact our thoughts, our words, our actions, to, to bring about a heart of gratitude and a spirit of worship. This is a worshipful confession of Jesus as Lord. Look at this again. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is beautiful. Uh, the first two lines of this confession uh, have to do, I, I believe, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, with uncovering who he is. First, this confession of faith stated that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. To, to manifest something is to, to clearly reveal it, to show it all without hiding or without deceit. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one through whom the Lord God created the universe, the light of life, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus became flesh. And this is what happened at Jesus' birth, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He had come. He took residence for a while in Mary's womb. Then he was born in the usual way. He lived his life, a perfect, sinless life. Yet in the last week of his life, he was physically beaten, his, his physical body broken and bruised. He was crucified. And that life he had lived ended. He died, crucified on a cross, dying in your place and on your behalf dying the death of a criminal. He was buried, his body physically buried. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No. He arose fully alive once again in the flesh in a body. And when the early Christian church confessed that they believed that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, they mean all that they believed in all of that, from the, from the birth to his death, in a real, physical, actual body. The second line of that confession, vindicated by the Spirit, is a line that could cause some confusion. The, the word vindicated means to be proven right. To be proven right. Minnesota Vikings have a bye week this week, so I can't be vindicated, be proven right in my pessimism regarding this season. Although their 5 and one start has me kind of doubting and kind of giving me hope. But just wait, right? The Viking season will go down to the wire. They'll, they'll lose the division to the Packers in spectacular fashion. And then my pessimism about the Vikings will be vindicated, will be proven right. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. This vindication by the Holy Spirit of Jesus, I believe, is a, and many believe too, is a, is a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Vindication goes, looks at his resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. All along, Jesus was and always will be the Son of God. But at his resurrection from the dead on that Easter morning, Jesus was vindicated, proven to be right in all of his claims of being God's Son. 
All of the doubts that Satan and the crowd hurled at Jesus during his life and ministry, right? If you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. If you are God's son, you could have kept Lazarus from dying. All of those doubts are tossed out the window at Jesus' resurrection. And all of the claims that Jesus made, things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Or, come to me, all you who are uh, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of their claims, those claims, find their yes and amen because of Jesus' resurrection. He was vindicated. He was proven right and true by the Holy Spirit at his resurrection from the dead. And so because Jesus was manifested in the flesh, we sang a Christmas hymn. Because Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit at his resurrection from the dead, we're going to sing an Easter hymn later on this morning. So keep that in mind. The next two lines of this hymn and this confession have to do with different groups uh, who witnessed Jesus' life and ministry and who were able to attest, who were able to witness to, the, to what Jesus has done and, and the truth of that. First, it says that Jesus was seen by angels, seen by angels. All throughout Jesus' life and ministry, angels were present. They kept showing up all over, right? They attended his birth, and the whole company of the heavenly hosts joyously brought the good news to the shepherds. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. You who sang creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Angels ministered to Jesus following or during his life at various times, too. For example, following Jesus' temptation uh, by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew tells us that the devil left Jesus and angels came and were ministering to him. Likewise, Luke tells us that when Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal and arrest, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Then, after Jesus rose from the dead, who was there to tell Mary and the other women about Jesus' resurrection? It was the angels, right? Angels were all over the place. They were there when Jesus ascended into heaven and told the disciples that Jesus would come back in just the same way he left. And it seems like angels, the messengers of the Lord, were always around witnessing and telling others about Jesus. The next group of witnesses to Jesus were the Gentiles. It says that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. What, word of what Jesus had done in Jerusalem spread across the world. Jews and Gentiles were all coming to faith in Christ Jesus. These early believers, too, would testify, would bear witness, just as the angels had done, to what Jesus had done by, by giving his life for theirs and the transformation that occurred as a result. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, among the Gentiles. So why does this creed, this hymn, this confession of faith mention these two groups, angels and Gentiles? One Bible scholar wrote that angels, as the messengers of the Lord God, were the least removed from Jesus. Gentiles, on the other hand, were the group furthest removed from the Lord God. And then there are two final lines of this hymn, this creed, this confession of faith that talk about the reception of Jesus and and how he was received. Jesus had been proclaimed among the nations and the nations were coming to faith in Jesus. They were believing in him. 
The fact that Paul, a a former Jewish rabbi, was writing to Timothy, a second-generation Gentile convert to Christianity in Ephesus, a very Roman, very pagan city, was proof that Jesus was being believed on in the world. The promise of John 1, 10 through 13 was coming true. John wrote, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, those who were born of God. The world was finally receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The world was being adopted into the family of God. And not only on the great grand out there somewhere scale, but on a personal level as well. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of the household of God, this describes you. This describes all of the blessings and all of the benefits that go along with being a child of God. As you believe in Jesus, your sins, they have been forgiven. They are credited to Jesus' account. He was... He has forgiven you of all of your sins. They've been washed clean by the blood of him shed on the cross. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. You've been purchased, ransomed, redeemed, restored, forgiven by the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. You are a kingdom and priest to our God. You are in Christ. He covers you. You have believed on him. You have received him. Amen. And not only was Christ believed on in the world and in your hearts and received by the world, he was received by heaven. He was taken up in glory. This not only describes all that he is, I'm sorry, this this describes his ascension into heaven, but more than that, it describes all that he is doing right now. Right now, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he is ruling, he is reigning as king. He's waiting, too, for the time to be right for his return. On the night before Jesus was betrayed um, and arrested and tried, he, he told his disciples, he said, It is to your advantage that I go away. If Jesus was still on earth, if he had not returned to the Father, he'd be bound by the laws of physics. He could only be in one place at one time. But now, as he is ruling and reigning from heaven, he is able to reach into each and every human heart through his spirit. He is able to abide with us in the hard times, in the dark times. He's able to encourage us and strengthen us when we face trials and temptations. He's present wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And he can do all of that because he was taken up into glory. And as we come to the end of this confession of Jesus as Lord, it shouldn't just leave us with a, with a greater head knowledge, should it? I've mentioned this a couple of times. As we look to Scripture and uncover more and more of our Savior, this hymn, this confession of faith, should cause us to rejoice in worship. And our worship shouldn't just be relegated to a handful of songs sung on a morning, Sunday morning or to a praise song that comes on the radio. But worship, true biblical worship, engages every aspect of our lives. It involves all of our being. Worship is who we are. Worship is what we are created to do. 
And if these truths that we've read are real, and I believe that they are, then these realities should affect our every moment of our life as well. The more we understand who Jesus Christ is, the more we understand what he has done for us. These, these realities, these truths begin to transform our life and our outlook on life. The fact that Jesus is alive gives us hope for tomorrow and a hope for our own eternal destinies. That reality shapes how we live, how we think, how we vote, how we conduct our business. The fact that Jesus is alive and has ascended to the right hand of the Father means that he's still in control. We have no need to fret or to stew or to worry about the future because he is in control of it. Worship of our Savior King who gave himself for us is to be more than just head knowledge. Worship is to be ingrained in who we are. Amen. All right, we need to get going. That was three verses and we've got ten to go. (laughs) Aren't you glad this is only a two-point sermon? (laughs) The second truth that we're going to look at uh, is from chapter four. Uh, first, First, the congregation was called to a worshipful confession of Jesus as Lord, and now the congregation is called to persist in faithful teachings of the word of God. Look at, uh, again, the first 10 verses of, of, of chapter 4. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars who conscience, whose consciences are sealed, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The congregation, which is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, you all, the congregation is called to persist in faithful teaching of the word of God. The unfortunate reality is that not all who are in a right relationship with the Lord will persist or continue in that right relationship. The sad truth is that some Christians will drift away from the Lord and from his word. Some will depart by a simple departure, which uh, used to be called apostasy. Today, the term uh, is called deconstruction, and I'm sure you've, you've heard of some once prominent Christians who have deconstructed their faith. They've left Christianity. They style themselves as ex-evangelicals. 
whether it was uh, Joshua, Harris, Joshua Harris of the I Kiss Dating Goodbye fame or Marty Sampson who was the lead singer and songwriter for Hillsong for a number of years or uh, even Kevin Max from DC Talk. Some of you might remember who DC Talk is, the Christian band from the late 80s, early 90s. These Christians have drifted away, departed from a right relationship with God. They've departed the faith by apostasy. They've departed by, by departing, by drifting away. And the Lord knew that this would happen. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. The latter times, I believe, is any time from Christ's ascension into heaven and his eventual return. <laughs> and we are living right now, as was Paul, in the latter times. Jesus knew that after his return to heaven, people would drift away and depart from him. He said, many will fall away, many will deconstruct and betray one another and hate one another. That's Matthew chapter 24. And C.S. Lewis astutely warned in mere Christianity of this drift away from Christianity. And he said this drift is often subtle and slow. He said, if you examine a hundred people who have lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would have turned out to be reasoned out of Christianity by an argument. He said, do not most people simply drift away? And I think Lewis is right. Most who leave Christianity lose, as Jesus put it, lose their first love. These people aren't given uh, seven convincing proofs that you should leave Christianity or, or anything like that. They simply let their love for him grow cold and stale. They don't enjoy his fellowship or his company anymore. They can't enjoy spending time in his word or with his people. They let other things replace that love of him that they had at the beginning. The good news, however, there is good news. It's the good news that Jesus' heart is for that one lost sheep. He will leave the 99 in pursuit of the one who goes away. He continues to search for, continues to love, continues to hope. The Lord is a farmer who scatters the seed, yes, on the good soil, but also scatters it on the road and the rocks and the weeds. Our God's heart is for those who have hardened soils. Our Lord will search and will clean the house until he finds the one or two lost coins and then rejoice in that. He searches for those who have departed from him. So if you have a loved one who has left the faith, who grew up knowing and loving the Lord, but now has deconstructed or apostatized, do not lose heart. The Lord's love, his heart is for them too. He loves them and he will actively pursue those who have left. Our God is a, is a God eagerly awaiting the return of any prodigal, son or daughter. So continue, continue to pray. Pray that they would come to their senses. And sometimes, sometimes that means they have to sit in the muck and the mire of the pig pen for a little while, right, before they get their head on straight. But never give up praying for them. Our Savior will never stop pursuing them. Some will depart by deconstruction, by apostasy. Others, Paul said, would, would uh, depart by devoting themselves to things other than Christ. Paul mentions there are a couple of things in verse um, 1 that attract our devotion and one thing down in verse 7 
Look at verse 1 and then jump down to verse 7. He says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. And then verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. These are the three things that people will devote themselves to. We don't have time to, to dive into each one of these this morning. Devotion to deceitful spirits, to the teaching of demons, to irreverent, silly myths would draw some Christians away from the faith. But let me summarize it this way. Christian, you need to be discerning. Don't take any, everything anyone says for gospel truth. Examine everything in the light of Scripture. Discern what Pastor Lloyd, what I say. Uh, don't come in here and shut your brain off on a Sunday morning. Compare what we say with what the Scripture says. Discern what the TV preachers are saying, too. And actually, just save yourself some time and don't spend too much time watching TV preachers. <laughs> but when you do, measure everything that they say with what Scripture says. Be discerning. We can say the same thing when it comes to the music that you listen to, the shows that you stream, the podcasts that you listen to. Test everything according to Scripture. Don't devote yourselves to deceitful spirits, to the teachings of demons, or to irreverent, silly myths. Instead, Paul says, instead we are to be trained, constantly trained in the words of faith. And just as the best offense is often a good defense, the best refutation of error is a positive presentation of the truth. Be trained in the words of truth. Know the words of truth. Look at verse 6 again. He says this, If you Put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Training for a marathon isn't something you just do one time, is it? I don't think anybody in their right mind would train one session for the 26.2-mile race and call that acceptable and good enough, would they? No. If you're serious about running a marathon... First and foremost, you have my prayers. But if you're serious about running a marathon, you, you train constantly, don't you, right? You start eating better. You, you spend time in the weight room. You run a lot, right? You, you lengthen your run so your muscles get used to that sort of abuse. In a similar fashion, your, your training in the words of faith, as Paul mentions, isn't a one-and-done session, right? Your time in confirmation doesn't mean that you have now graduated and know it all. Even if you went to the Bible college, you're not done being trained or equipped in the words of faith. Even though I am a pastor, a seminary-trained pastor, I am not done being trained in the word of God. Pastor Lord, you're not done yet either, are you? No. Uh, we all have more training to undergo. Each one of us, no matter if we've been a believer in Christ for five minutes or for 75 years, we need to be constantly trained in the word of faith. And I am grateful for you, a congregation that highly values Sunday school and Bible study, and not just for kids, but for adults as well. None of us are ever done learning, ever done in our training. And I'm so thankful for your support of events like our district youth retreat in November, the fly convention coming up this summer. Thank you. And thanks also to your, uh, for your support of the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary, their mission of establishing students in the eternal and inerrant word of God for a life of faith in Jesus Christ and faithful service to his kingdom. 
That's an outpouring of Paul's charge to be continually trained in the words of truth. So again, thank you, Maranatha, for your continued support of these events, these classes, these places that train individuals in the words of truth. Thank you for your worshipful confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior as you make that confession with your mouth, yes, but also with your very life as well. Amen. Our, uh, our, I don't know if you noticed this last summer, but our, our sign out front on, on Highway 10 uh, didn't get changed, right? <laughs> um, probably from April to August, it had the same message, right? Uh, he is risen, proclaimed the sign. And we got some flack for not changing the words and for still having an Easter message up during the middle of summer. And yes, the, the sign probably should have been changed, right? But that truth, uh, the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead and that the tomb is still empty, that is a truth that I don't remind repeating over and over and over again. Christ the Lord is risen today as he was yesterday and as he is forevermore. Amen. So I would invite you to sing with me that hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And I think we need to stand for this one. I know after the sermon we're usually accustomed to sitting for this hymn, but would you please stand with me as we uh, make this confession, this declaration that Christ the Lord is risen today. It's number 104 in your ambassador hymnal.
Praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Holy Spirit. Amen.